Imagine it. A village near London. 1725. You are just a standard peasant, we'll say a blacksmith, perhaps. But the event of the year is coming up, and you've saved every shilling to get yourself a halfway decent spot for the execution of Jonathan Wilde. You're not alone. The crowd jostles and shoves, jeers and shouts, growing louder and louder until Jonathan Wilde is brought to the scaffold. The priest goes to deliver his final prayers, but it seems he's having some difficulty even being heard over the crowd. The executioner strides forward, ready to do his duty, but... When he looks at Jonathan Wilde, he hesitates. He has memories of his own, you see, involving Wilde, and they're not of a criminal nature at all. They're from when he attended Jonathan Wilde's wedding. But the crowd isn't having it. The shouts become louder and turn into threats as the executioner's hesitation becomes clear. Until finally, they make it clear to him, it's Wilde's life or yours. Jonathan Wilde had quite the memorable hanging, and it followed quite the memorable career. He basically ran his own criminal empire. But wrapped up in that empire, an inextricable part of it was Fighting crime. Sort of. That was just the way things were then. The system just stood ready for someone to take advantage while actually doing a little bit of good along the way. It would take a series of people and slowly evolving circumstances, each affecting the other in a constant ebb and flow, for a real system of catching criminals to come about. And while we may have plenty of criticisms for that system as it stands today, well, just wait till you hear how they used to do things. Welcome to Detectives by the Decade. This is the podcast that looks at the detectives, the scientists, and the cases that gave us forensics as we know it today. I'm Christy Baxter. A few show notes before we begin. We are back for season two, and I am so excited. But we have a slight change in scheduling that we hope you'll understand. In order to produce the best episodes possible, we're going to be changing this to an every other week podcast. So yes, you will have to wait longer for episodes, but we truly think the wait will be worth it. We'll still release on Thursdays, and additionally, this will probably help shorten breaks between seasons and maybe even give you some longer seasons. But for now, we have a new season to start, and boy, is it going to be a wild ride. You'll forgive the pun. (laughs) And it starts, as you've already heard, with a man named Wild. This is Season 2, Episode 1, The Bow Street Runners. 
Jonathan Wilde started his career after being tossed into debtor's prison. While there, he joined the ranks of those who were allowed to leave the prison at night for one specific purpose. Thief-taking. That is, helping to find and arrest those accused of theft. From there, he moved on to work as a fence. You know, the guy who gets and sells the stuff thieves steal. Over time, he gathered quite the gang of thieves working under him. This, combined with his history as a thief-taker, led him to develop quite the racket, and it worked like this. His thieves would steal stuff. The newspapers would report the crime. Jonathan Wilde would come forward and say that his guys had, through brilliant investigation, found the stolen items and would happily return them to their rightful owners. For a small, reasonable fee, of course. Cost of doing business, you know? And his gang of thief-takers would, naturally, ferret out the culprits, who sometimes tended to be, by pure coincidence, I'm sure, members of other gangs who threatened his dominance or underlings who refused to follow his orders. And if he decided that any of his thieves were not as useful as they once had been, he sold them out and happily collected the 40-pound reward while they swung from the gallows. That is, nearly 11000 in today's U.S. dollars. Wilde turned in at least 60 thieves during his time in the role of, as the public would call him, the Thief-Taker-General. Oh, and the government would raise that 40-pound reward to 100 pounds eventually. On Wilde's advice, of course. That's over 26000 in today's dollars. Her head. Now you have to understand, to the public, he was a hero. This man was the reason you got your belongings back if you were victimized, and then he could get you retribution and justice too. The papers documented his valiant exploits because Wilde himself was bringing his story to the press. But the pendulum of public opinion is pretty easily swayed, and Wilde's heroic status couldn't last forever. Wilde caught Jack Shepard, a famous burglar. Shepard escaped. Wilde caught him. Shepard escaped. Wilde caught him. Shepard escaped. Wilde caught him. Shepard escaped. In all this, Shepard got the good press and the good public opinion, and Wilde fell from grace. Both of them were criminals, mind you. There's no true hero in this particular story. But after Shepard finally went to the gallows, 
Wilde didn't have the advantages he'd once had, as the public now knew that its once hero was actually one of the worst criminals of them all. Public opinion no longer insulated him, and he was arrested and hanged after breaking one of his thieves out of jail. Overall, Wilde's methods are a good picture of the state of things in 1700s Britain. If you were victimized by a thief, you may then have been conned by the very man who employed that thief. And in the case of Jonathan Wilde, that man would then be lionized by the press and the public. Although there were certainly many, many like Jonathan Wilde, taking from both the victims and the government, and keeping it quiet. But as we can see with Wilde's tale, nothing lasts forever, and this state of affairs was about to come to an end. Slowly, and with more than its fair share of corruption, but eventually and at last, victims of crime would have recourse that didn't require them to be victimized all over again. The 16 and 1700s saw a rise in crime in London for a variety of reasons. The rapid increase of population as immigrants flocked to the city, political instability, and a local system that quickly got overwhelmed, just to name a few. If you have a lot of new people coming to an area, they need jobs and resources, right? Well, eventually those jobs and resources are going to run out. And when that happens, crime naturally follows. You also had, with this sudden influx of people and no one really planning for it, the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy living side by side. And that's all well and good, except that this situation provided both opportunity and the motivation of pure desperation. Author Henry Fielding, who we'll be spending some time with this episode, stated outright that one factor in the crime increase was... The vast torrent of luxury which of late years hath poured itself into this nation. As one writer described the local environment... The streets were swarmed with beggars and criminals. The brothels and halls were crowded with unruly mobs. Robberies and murders were very openly performed and often went unpunished. And when culprits were caught, the mob took a holiday and went off to enjoy a hanging or two. Indeed, London's social conditions at the time might be compared with those of Rome or Corinth in its worst days. Geography and city planning, or lack thereof, allowed crime to flourish, too. In a report discussing the increase of crime and some possible remedies, Henry Fielding noted that the setup of London itself contributed to the difficulties of catching thieves. Whosoever considers the cities of London and Westminster, with the vast addition of their suburbs, the great irregularity of their buildings, the immense number of lanes, alleys, courts, and by-places, must think that they had been intended for the very purpose of concealment. 
they could scarce have been better contrived. Upon such a view, the whole appears as a vast forest in which a thief may harbor with great security. Other factors played their part. For instance, author Colin Wilson mentions the proliferation of a particular drink, Geneva, named for the berries that were distilled and fermented to make it. You might know it as gin. The drink was fairly new to England, having only reached its shores in 1689, but it didn't take long for it to spread. By Jonathan Wilde's day, London was home to over 6,000 gin shops. All this is definitely not to say that debauchery and crime were singularly the occupation of the less fortunate. Rich people can crime it up just as well, frequently better, than those with only a few pounds in the bank. Although criming better is a relative term. Take the Mohawks. This was an actual group of people, mostly men of means, who had way too much time on their hands. You'd have to be pretty bored, not to mention cruel, sadistic, and downright monstrous, to think that the following would be worthwhile pursuits. Grabbing the nearest old lady or sex worker for the purposes of forcing her into a tar barrel, in which she was made to stand on her head, while the Morlocks either slashed at her legs, forcing her to do quite the gymnastics routine to avoid injury, or just downright took advantage of the captive victim to stab her in the legs with a sword. They also enjoyed poking out people's eyes, smashing their noses, and slashing up faces. And then there were the Bold Bucks, a precursor to the Mohawks, who did a bunch of sadistic stuff and then threw in plenty of sexual assault for good measure. This is just to set the scene and show you the environment in London and also to make sure that you don't think it was thieves and only thieves. You had these gangs of men roaming around with way too much money, way too much time, and sometimes way too much gin, just torturing people. For fun. It wasn't necessarily all chaos, though. Just really close to it. You had some rudimentary law enforcement measures in place. There were constables, but they were chosen by lot, so depending on what straw he drew, your constable might end up being Joseph Q. Publican, who had two years of schooling and had been a little off ever since the accident. And as far as catching criminals was concerned, the public was expected to join in. And to encourage this, of course, rewards were offered. Over time, of course, many less ethical members of society found ways to take advantage of this, and an unofficial, disorganized class of law enforcement developed. The thief-takers who were, more often than not, 
criminals using the entrenched system to commit more crimes. That, of course, included characters like Jonathan Wilde, although he was more like the Don or Kingpin of a whole gang of thief-takers. They were like bounty hunters, mixed with a dash of super-rudimentary private detectives, but they also were frequently criminals themselves. Now, the thief-takers were a product of their time and surroundings. With no official law enforcement in place, an unofficial one sprang up to take advantage of the desperate need for some control over the skyrocketing crime rates. Of course, sometimes they double-dealt, or, depending on how you look at it, triple-dealt, meaning they'd pull the old mobster act and demand protection money from the thieves. Even worse, if the government offered a bounty for a criminal, the thief-takers would say, well, why bother finding the guilty party? and instead would settle for whatever chump they could put up as the supposed criminal, trading the head of an innocent man or woman. Or child, look, we know how brutal this time period could be. Let's not pretend it wasn't possible. Trading that head for a nice reward. Sometimes this perversion of the system helped out more than the thief-taker they might have been hired by someone looking for vengeance. Whether that vengeance was justified, well, that was between everyone involved and their god. Thus, you had victims of theft who may or may not get their stolen goods back by paying thief-takers, who would then go demand money from the thieves and who would sometimes also blame innocent people of crimes for reward money. You can probably see that one party was coming out on top here, and it wasn't the victims. London did have a system of magistrates in place, but they looked the other way, mainly because the thief-takers were needed. If you cracked down on them, you created a vacuum in which more crime would occur. Thief-takers were, for the time, a sort of lesser of two evils option. But the government, with all the rewards going out to those who successfully captured accused criminals who may not have actually committed the crime, wasn't actually seeing a return on its investment. So you had men like Jonathan Wilde, and those who came before and after him. Organized crime, really. And then you had no real organization at all in the forces meant to apprehend criminals, because that was being left to organized crime. What systems were in place for law enforcement were either entirely corrupt or entirely ineffective. Both of these issues were present in part because the individuals involved received either no or little pay. That made those rewards extra-powerful motivation. Now, for all the bad that Jonathan Wilde did, his empire at least was successful in curbing crime, even if that wasn't for the sake of the community so much as it was for the sake of lining his own pockets. 
And so not long after he was not long for this world, crime in London was booming once again. London needed, more than anything, a person with brains and principles. It got a person with brains. Thomas DeVale spent much of the 1710s boozing it up, and he had an eye for the ladies that tended to get him into trouble as well. Then he mostly straightened up his act and managed to climb his way to a magistrate position, with Winchester and Middlesex as his territory. Now, DeVale may not have started out looking to improve the state of criminal affairs in his district. In fact, he kind of added to them. His position as magistrate was one in which the right offer could help him forget that a crime had even happened. And if young women didn't have cash to offer, he made it clear that he accepted other forms of currency. Right next to his office, in the room he kept specifically for accepting bribes from young ladies. As his biographer said, His greatest foible was a most irregular passion for the fairer sex. But that's all just rumors, you say. We can't possibly know that he was incredibly promiscuous. Except for the 25 children he produced from his four marriages. And those were the legal children. As far as those that were the product of some poor, desperate soul entreating him for mercy in his office, well, we don't really know how many there might be. I'm just going to rampantly speculate. A lot. Like, a lot. A lot. But for all his bed-hopping, DeVale must have been doing at least an okay job when he was on his feet and put his mind to it. As he did some actual law enforcement and detective work. We know this because in 1735, a gang of thieves, one of the biggest and most brutal in London, planned his assassination when they found out DeVale was investigating them. They spied on his offices, at the time located at Leicester Square, and plotted to take his life. But all their planning went straight to hell when one of the gang got nervous, gave up the ghost, and confessed. That pretty much spelled the end for that gang, once the veil found out. Not long after that, DeVale got himself a change of scenery. He moved his offices from Leicester Square to Bow Street in 1739. And he started to really use some detective skills. He solved burglaries and murders using a keen attention to detail and admirable diligence. In the case of one burglary, he borrowed a penknife from a person of interest 
and noticed that the tip was missing. And sure enough, the tip was found in the lock of the burgled building. In another case, he had a missing man, a worried nephew, and a shifty servant. But as long as he didn't have a body, the servant wasn't much inclined to talk. So he put together a thorough search of the school of which the missing man had been principal. It wasn't until they checked the outside privy that they found him, crammed into the privy head first and drained of blood. And with that, they nabbed a confession from the shifty servant. It turned out the servant had bludgeoned the victim and then beat him to death. But when he needed to carry the corpse off, he realized it was going to be a bloody mess that would lead straight to him. So he stripped naked, and using a fruit knife and a chamber pot, he drained the body of blood before dragging it out to the privy. The privy was situated directly above a sewer, so the servant was hoping that would disguise the rotting scent of his murdered master. The servant was hanged within a few months. Through cases like these and others, DeVale earned himself a reputation that spread far and wide, and others attempting to solve crimes frequently came to him for help. He was England's first consulting detective. In 1746, DeVale died, and the next person to step into his shoes was Henry Fielding. Talk a little bit about Henry Fielding. Fielding was the author of the novel Tom Jones, published in 1749. But long before that, the same year that Jonathan Wilde was hanged, Henry Fielding was doing memorable things. He was quite impoverished, and he no longer wanted to be impoverished. So he tried to kidnap his own cousin, an heiress, on her way to church so he could marry into her fortune. Here again, we can see the lengths people will go to when deprivation is rampant and class disparities are cast in such sharp contrast. And his own actions perhaps informed Field's later conclusions about crime and its causes. After attempting to kidnap his own cousin and force her to marry him, Henry Fielding began a literary career that lasted 25 years. Eventually, he would write a satiric novel about Jonathan Wilde himself. His literary ventures weren't quite enough to sustain him, though. In 1737, partially as a result of the plays Fielding wrote satirizing him, the Prime Minister, 
Robert Walpole, instituted some new rules. Every play had to be approved before it could be performed. That's what you get for calling the prime minister impudent, I guess. Talk about thin-skinned. Fielding tried to pivot to novels, but as groundbreaking and enduring as some of them might have been, they weren't really moneymakers. So he went into government work and ended up becoming chief magistrate of London. Fielding saw Wilde's enterprise as that of a man taking advantage of a flawed system. The thief-takers, he thought, could be an effective form of law enforcement with a few tweaks. The issues he sought to fix were the reliance on rewards and the illegitimacy of the thief-takers. He hoped that both of these fixes would cut down on corruption. In his position as magistrate, Henry and his half-brother John, a fellow magistrate, worked together to form a force to combat these issues. This group started in 1749 with six men who worked out of the Bow Street Magistrate's office. And the magistrate's office actually paid them. This helped to disincentivize corruption, at least somewhat. And the constables also got a reward for each capture, but with an organized structure behind these rewards, corruption was less likely to be a problem. There was a clear system at work here. The magistrate's office would advertise in the newspapers that anyone who reported a crime to the Bow Street Magistrate's office would get a one-shilling reward. Then, as soon as the report came into the Bow Street office, the Bow Street runners would... run. And so the public eventually took to calling them the Bow Street Runners, although the nickname wasn't exactly welcome. The actual members of the squad, in fact found it rude. My best explanation for this comes from looking at the words history at edamonline.com. Runner was first recorded as a term for smugglers in 1721, and it didn't become associated with police officially until 1771. So it may have been the association with criminals that the Bow Street Runners objected to, or just the feeling of minimization that the nickname brought. Fielding, in setting up his new system, also incorporated the resources at his disposal, the public and the printing press. He used pamphlets and advertisements to raise awareness about crime and criminals, and even started up a publication called the Covent Garden Journal that included information about the Bow Street Runner's latest targets descriptions of ongoing criminal cases, and all of this was sandwiched between advertisements for local theaters, articles about military affairs, outbreaks of the pox, and the social doings of people in high places. Fielding and his clerk would write columns filled with news from the Bow Street Court, where Fielding and his fellow magistrates attended to justice for those captured by the Bow Street Runners. 
He also worked to reform the prisons, and in his writings, he supported the wildly revolutionary idea of making public hangings a thing of the past. And if you want to talk about being ahead of your time, talk about the fact that it took more than an entire century after his proposal for this to happen. Being right is great, except when no one listens until you've been in the ground for 114 years. Henry Fielding had a lot of plans for law enforcement reform, but he didn't get to implement them. He died in Lisbon, Portugal, after a variety of medical issues sent him in search of fresh air and a cure. But there was someone quite close to him waiting in the wings. After Henry Fielding's death, his half-brother John took over as chief magistrate. And in that position, John earned himself the nickname, the Blind Beak of Bow Street. Now let's break this down. The Bow Street part is pretty obvious. The Beak thing? Beak was, at the time, slang for someone with authority. And the Blind part? Well, that was literal. Ever since an accident when he was in the Navy at age 19, John Fielding was blind. Keep in mind, not only was Braille not a thing yet, Braille wasn't a thing yet. As in Louis Braille, the inventor of, guess what, Braille, who was born in 1809. But that didn't seem to stop John Fielding for a second. He apparently memorized the voices of over 3,000 criminals who passed through his court. John Fielding took his half-brother's plans, and probably a few of his own, and ran with them. Like his brother, he used the printing press to help catch criminals. His publication was called The Quarterly Pursuit. That's just enough of a pun that I'm okay with it. And it was during John Fielding's tenure, which ran from his brother's death in 1754 until his own death in 1780, that a mounted patrol was established. You see, highway robbery was another issue that while it had been around for a long time, was now surging in the crime rates due to societal changes. Roads were getting better, and with that improvement, you saw more people willing to take them. There was also a significant bump in trade, and more trade means more people traveling with fat wads of cash after selling their goods in the city. Through a government grant, John Fielding got together a horse patrol in 1763. They got the nickname Robin Redbreasts thanks to their red waistcoats. And I'm sure the runners were a little bit 
jealous. The Robin Redbreasts were pretty effective, and highway robbery rates did decrease. The grant only lasted so long, though, and once the government's support ran out, the highway robbers were once again emboldened to prey on travelers and stagecoaches. John Fielding also increased the runners' contributions from the government, tripling them in just eight years. This went not only toward the runners' payment and rewards, but also towards the cost of advertising wanted criminals. And, of course, the officers weren't the only employees. Clerks and assistants in the office tended to record-keeping about criminals and offenses. This was quite revolutionary, as we can see some shades of the methods Vidoc would employ several decades before he did so. Organization, it seemed, was John Fielding's forte. In addition to his proto-database, he also implemented new systems to speed up and improve communications between officers and the main office. He kept up his work for more than 25 years after taking over for his brother, right up until his death in 1780 at the age of 58. By that time, he was Sir John Fielding, having received a knighthood in 1761. Almost exactly half a century later, the Metropolitan Police Service was formed. It was founded by Robert Peel, and if you've ever wondered why some Brits call policemen bobbies, well, look no further than the name of the Metropolitan Police Force's founder. And it took a little while but the Bow Street Runners eventually were folded into the Metropolitan Police. From criminals taking advantage of the system to take advantage of victims, other criminals, and the government, to a loosely organized band of a few relying on public reports, to an actual municipal organization, you can see the evolution that took just a few hundred short years. Oh, and Jonathan Wild? If you want to pay him a visit, you still can. Just pop by the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, where his skeleton is, to this day, on public display. It seems he just couldn't stay out of the public eye. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad we're back, and I hope you're glad too. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, of course, you can always show us your appreciation by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on whatever platforms you use. You can also find us on our social media where we are Detectives by the Decade on Facebook and Instagram, and just by the Decade on Twitter. We'll be posting some classic photos related to the Bow Street Runners and some of the characters involved this week. If you have any comments, questions, or if social media just isn't your thing but you want to get in touch, 
detectivesbythedecade at gmail.com. Or you can follow me in person. I am KBAX Writer on Twitter and Instagram. This is a new thing I might do on each episode. You see, I can tell where my listeners are tuning in from. So each week, I think I might say hi to my listeners in a particular city. So this week, I would like to say hello to Santa Cruz, California. I hope this isn't creepy. (laughs) And if it is, I might stop. But maybe not. Don't forget, as usual, come over to Old Timey Crimey, my other podcast, and listen to our filthy words. And if you just can't get enough of these dulcet tones, I am now on a third podcast, short story, short podcast, with Chris Garcia. I tell you the premise, but I suspect you might just deduce it from the title. Links to both podcasts can be found in the show notes, so come on and listen to me in other places, with other people. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple weeks. Detectives by the Decade is researched, written, and produced by me, Christy Baxter. Voice acting by the incredible Scott Mort. Music by Kevin McLeod and Alexander Nakarada. My sources for this episode are Written in Blood, A History of Forensic Detection by Colin Wilson, historybytheyard.co.uk, John Dashney on the National Federation of the Blind, Wikipedia, Esther Fern on Britannica, Jen Jeffers on The Raven Report, Jessica Brain on Historic UK, Naomi Clifford on NaomiClifford.com, and Gerard Edward Jensen on The Covent Garden Journal. Of the Burgled Building of the burgled building, of the burgled building. Say it again, different this time, of the burgled building.